That's it. That's what. What's the idea? Well, what's the big idea? What's the big idea? What's the big idea, Egghead? What's the big idea? Welcome back to What's the Big Idea. Today on the show, we have Priya Parker. So Priya is a main stage TED speaker and most notably the author of The Art of Gathering, which is all about how we meet and come together and why it matters. So whether you are approaching this conversation through the lens of the professional, through the personal, if you think about all the times that you are getting people together for a dinner party, for a business meeting, for a conference, for an event, you name it. Um, One of my favorite things that Priya says is the difference between uh, routine and ritual is one word. It is intention. And what you're going to get out of this podcast is so much practical insight into the techniques, the systems, the ideas that you can use to make your events more intentional. And Priya has been thinking about the art of facilitation and gathering for most of her professional life. And we talk so much about some of her early childhood and what inspired her to really kind of study um, you know, this, this practice and, you know, how it developed through her, her own company that was focused on the idea of vision of helping people come together and connect through shared purpose and vision for the world, the business they want to create and how that led her to understand the need for sustained dialogue and meaningful conversation and understanding how you can create containers that facilitate meaningful conversation that move businesses, relationships forward. So she is a fountain of wisdom. Uh, She's got amazing stories and this is a true masterclass in facilitation, the art of gathering, and uh, I know you're going to love it. So uh, without further ado, here is Priya Parker, and if you are enjoying this episode, if you've enjoyed some before it, please take a moment to head on over to our page on Apple, Spotify, wherever you're listening, and drop us a review. More good stuff to come. Without further ado, Priya Parker. All right, Priya, welcome to What's the Big Idea? Thank you for having me. It is such a pleasure to have you on the show, and uh, I was uh, just talking to Priya before we got on about how awesome it's been to see her kind of meteoric rise to the TED main stage and so many other platforms where people have been able to access her incredible work in the world of facilitation and meaningful gathering, and so it's uh, I'm uh, very excited to have you on the show today, so thank you for making the time. Thank you. I, that's very kind. And so Priya, so you have become kind of one of the the leading authorities in the world on awesome events. And so I'm curious, with everything that you must see and attend and be a part of now, what is an event that has absolutely blown you away uh, in recent memory? (laughs) You know, I think one of the reasons why um, people are drawn to my lens, if you will, is because my lens is shaped... um, like I think for so many people through an, a series of experiences uh, of pain. Um, and the lens that I bring to gathering is really that of conflict resolution and groups trying to, and people trying to figure out their identities. And so, you know, a recent event that blew me away um, perhaps doesn't, I, I don't think of necessarily like a conference or a, um, or like a massive party, but it, I was a friend of mine recently, um, her, her father passed away and she is, uh, she's an immigrant and she, um, her parents come from two different countries and she realized she went home to her, her birth country to, um, bury her father and have a funeral with the community that she grew up with and came back and she just said, you know, I asked her how she was doing and she said, well, you know, it's funny. I went to this funeral and the role I played was really to be a support to my mother. Um, and I came back and I just feel deeply disconnected to my community because mm-hmm. I have, I, I'm not sure why. And we kind of talked about it for a bit and she's, and she kind of identified that she, um, she was sort of mourning the loss of her identity as daughter to her father and that the community that she currently lives in, um, is, you know, a big city, 
nobody knows that identity of her, right? They know her as a entrepreneur. They know her as a as a mother. She has a child. She, they know her as a wife. They know her as all these other things. And she said, it's a very odd, modern thing that the people who are deeply in my life wouldn't have come to my father's funeral. Mm. And so we, um, <laughs> so we began to invent kind of this modern made up ritual to help her share that experience and mourn her father with friends and her current family and, and context that, do, that doesn't know this part of her. And so she hosted this gathering where she um, invited about 30 friends and kind of explained this in an email and said, um, I'd like to, you to come to help me honor my father. And people came and it was just in her living room. They, you know, dressed in black and, um, and she, and we kind of designed this ritual where she, for the first half or so, um, kind of just spoke about her father. Like it wasn't particularly rehearsed, but she kind of told the story of like, who was her father and these various stories. And a number of us, you know, started laughing at different moments because we realized like, oh my gosh, that's, that's so her. Um, and then, and then she kind of, opened it to the group and said, I'm, you know, I'm in a lot of pain right now. What, you know, those of you who have lost, like, do you have any advice? And then, and not everybody knew each other, but people started sharing like experiences of how they grieved when they lost their parents. And, um, and then she ended it by playing like a, um, like a, a prayer that he would play on the radio or on his, on his recorder every morning in the shower as like this, like this almost closing. And then we just, and then we feasted. And to me, I, I, I was at some level blown away by it because it was this kind of cobbling together of a modern ritual that's invented in part because we all are craving ceremony and ritual and marking, but our lives look very different than they did hundreds of years ago when most of the rituals we inherited were created. Mm-hmm. And when, when did this kind of societal shift happen where we started to lose the, the practice of ritual and ceremony to bring people together? I mean, I think it's a, it, it, it's a series of different events um, and has happened over time. You know, one of the things I found in a lot of my research was, I, you know, I interviewed over 100 gatherers in extreme contexts who many of them don't think of themselves as quote unquote gatherers, but, um, you know, a rabbi, a, a dominatrix, a, a photographer who has seven minutes with the head of state and has to figure out like with 10 bodies guards in the room, how to like <laughs> flip the contacts and get the shot. And um, one of the things that I found was that a lot of the transformative gatherings, even in my research, came from specific sub-communities. So like a black fraternity line crossing or um, a Tamilian red thread tying ceremony um, or, you know, a, an Appalachia hootenanny, like a specific ritual with a specific group of people who are all the same. I mean, you know, the difference among their differences, but a monolithic group, they pray the same way, they eat the same way, they believe in the same God, they, you know, believe in the same rituals and myths. And basically, as we've become more modern, more diverse, more global, people move, and we are trying to frankly not offend one another, all good things. The specificity of the ritual has been thrown out because we don't share the same common assumptions. And so I think our gatherings have become diluted and vague because they've lost the power of their specificity in trying to accommodate a lot of diverse people. And so I think of like our modern challenge is how do you actually create meaningful ritual across your many identities and communities that are still specific without people having to be the same? And you use the word meaningful ritual. And I'm just curious, how do you define, and for people who they have a, an understanding of what ritual means, but what, what is a ritual when you speak of ceremony? When you use those terms, what, is it, what does it literally mean to you? You know, there's many, there's many definitions. And one that um, I really like is, is, it's a very simple one. It comes from a, from a cultural anthropologist. And, it's, and he says it's, it's it's simply a, trans, a, a transition of state from yeah. a state and to a state. 
And so at some level, and a ritual doesn't need to be collective, like just the actual word. So your morning coffee, it transfers you, or your morning tea, it transfers you from night state to morning state. Um, and so I think part of, part of the, to me, the connection between ritual and, and what I'm interested in is transformative gatherings is how do you move people from a state to a state? And that state doesn't have to be fireworks or, you know, like, I don't know, um, wild wilderness treks or ayahuasca ceremonies. I mean, it can be, but I mean, I'm talking about this at, at dinner parties, at seven-year-old birthday parties, at, at, which is basically how do you actually change people's like perspective on something or mindset on something or sense of what's possible and that it can happen in everyday normal ways that any of us can do. I, I love that idea of shift. It's oftentimes when I work with people on uh, TED Talk, like preparation, what I'll do is I always ask them, like, what is what is a transformative shift? Like, what is your audience going into and having clarity about what that is going in so that you understand where people are at coming in and, and the desired outcome of where you're going to leave them, which is so powerful. And so and I want to get so much deeper into some of like the practical uh, aspects of planning meaningful experiences with work, socially, with family. And, but you you said one word, like right when you keyed off, that, that really intrigued me. And you talked about identity. And I, I'm curious about how identity plays a real role in your kind of creation of meaningful experiences and, and how you consider that in your approach. Um, so that is a very astute question. <laughs> um, you know, my... My, to me, all gathering is an act of individual and collective identity formation. Mm. And partly because I think, well, partly because it's informed by my own experience growing up. And I, I think you know this, but I'm, I'm biracial, I'm bi-religious, I'm bi-culture. I grew up in these two like pretty polar opposite families between the age of 11 and 20. Um, my, you know, my, I grew up in a context in which one family was Indian and British. My parents are divorced. They each remarried. And so I went back and forth between these two households every other Friday afternoon. But each family was also trying to figure out who they were, right? Like two new marriages simultaneously trying to figure out who are they, who are these second marriages, and what what do they keep from their previous marriages, and what do they leave behind? Um, and so to me, um, I think that all times, every time two and I think three or more people come together, at some level, it's an implicit negotiation of different versions of the same question, which is, who are we? Mm. What do we believe? What kind of people are we? Who are we not? What are our values? But it always happens like at a very deeply practical level. Like it's not, you know, no, that, that's really the explicit question. And I learned this, you know, I'm a conflict resolution facilitator and I'm trained in a process called sustained dialogue. And I mean, if you really want to geek out, <laughs> um, I, this, this, this realization of how important identity came from, came from um, my mentor, Hal Saunders. And he had, he was a Kissinger's assistant secretary of state, wrote the Camp David Accords, worked for government for you know, 40 years and then eventually left government and worked with citizens on the ground. And he basically, yeah. and he came up with this model of relationships, which is basically he believed that anytime a group comes together, the, rather than trying to change what they're arguing about, if you can change the underlying relationships, then you have capacity to change the world. And he created this just through watching groups in, in, Armenia and Azerbaijan, in Tajikistan, in Soviet Union, U.S., um, that he says relationships in a group are, tran are transformational, meaning like you can change them. And he says there's five elements of a relationship. One is identity. Two is power. Three is patterns of interaction. Four is stereotypes, perceptions, and misperceptions. Um, and fifth is interests. And identity, he says, is there are certain elements of our identity that are fixed. And even those are, you know, those, what we assume is fixed identity is also changing over time. Um, but, you know, your race or um, your, like, you know, your physical body, though, again, that's also cur currently being contested. And then there's certain parts of our identity that evolve over time. 
like what we believe we are. And he always believed that the most powerful element of a, of a facilitator is to shake open what people assume their identity is. And to me, underneath all gatherings, it's like, it's a question to say like, well, how do we celebrate a birthday party? How much money do we spend on our, you know, seven-year-old? What do we think is appropriate to spend money on? What kind of people do we invite? Do we follow the norms? Or do we not follow the norms? Are we traditional people or are we, do we break the mold? Like all of these questions get brought up when you're at making a series of decisions about a gathering that other people are going to witness. That's beautiful. So, and when you talk about that, do you address that directly with people when they're coming into events to help them understand the identities that they're bringing into a gathering? I don't talk about it explicitly unless it's it's related to my conflict resolution work. So, if I if the so I believe that gatherings are are helpful and powerful and meaningful when the host and the guests know what the purpose is. So for me, if the purpose of one of the, and I still, I'm a, you know, I'm a professional facilitator. I still work with organizations and political movements um, to have complicated conversations. So when this concept I believe is going to help a group have a breakthrough or even begin to understand why they're coming together, then I'll explicitly say that. But otherwise it's, it's happening anyway. And I just use this as a lens so that any host, any time you, know, you think about like, well, why did my family weekend fall apart, right? We all went camping and it was supposed to be this really fun weekend and, and the adults coming together with, you know, as adults with, with grandma and everything kind of fell apart. It's like, why? Was it because of the way we fished? Like, no, <laughs> <laughs> it's because underneath it, at some level, each person is coming back to their family of origin and asking who was I? Who am I now? And is there space for both? Mm. That's beautiful. You know, and like fight over like, is it big marshmallows or small marshmallows? I mean, I'm making this up, right? But to me, underneath most gatherings are questions of identity and power. You know, one of the things why this is so intriguing as you're talking about this is we we do explicitly call out identity in some of the men's works retreats that we host. And and have you are you familiar with the identity model of change? No. I learned about it through a great book called Atomic Habits. And it basically posits it says, as humans, we do the types of things that align with the type of person we think we are. Mm. And it and it talks about it through the lens of behavior change. And it says that we oftentimes think about it as like a two-part equation of let's say that like I want to lose 15 pounds. And so I think about that as my result. And then, okay, so what are the the processes and the actions I can take to help me lose 15 pounds? And if I do those actions and I'll get the results that I want. And what the identity model of change says is that there's like a third part to this equation that we don't consider. And it's how we identify. Because if we don't identify as someone who truly values our health Beautiful. and believes that we're destined to be fat, that we're going to revert back to the behaviors that align with our identity. Beautiful. And so, and so with men's work, what we talk about is this idea of, of unearthing the masculine identity that for most of the men who are there have accepted and what are the forces that have contributed to that? Beautiful. And you know, what has this subconscious acceptance of this identity actually imprinted onto our actions before we got there, but even in a container of a bunch of guys, how is it imprinting onto our expression of, of being a guy? And uh, it's, it's really, really fascinating. And I've always loved it through that lens. And it's really powerful to, to hear it brought into the, the realm of facilitation. Um, and, you know, I think it's so powerful as we move into your big idea again, you know, as we're gearing up for, for the re-release of, of The Art of Gathering and, and paperback uh, next year. And you, you talk about being a facilitator. And I think that, you know, again, we talk about ritual. And one of the things I like to do on the show is actually to bring more tangible understanding to those types of words. And so when you say that, because you are so thoughtful of such great words, when you, when you call yourself a facilitator, what does that mean to you? <laughs> to me, it means, you know, the, the actual definition is somebody who eases the way. And mm. I actually don't think that's a helpful definition, or at least that's not what I mean <laughs> by it. <laughs> um, you know, and, and terminology and language really matter. You know, there's, as a sustained dialogue person, we were at, we actually were called and Alton Hal Saunders would, would say like, this language is really 
important, we actually called ourselves moderators. Um, and that also reflects his generation. He came, you know, from a, from a, from an earlier generation where language around diplomacy and frankly structure was, was, was considered, you know, important. Um, you know, to me, a facilitator in the way that I'm in the way that I use it, which is sort of capital F, um, is somebody who helps to create the context and give people the courage to have the conversations they need to be having. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons I use facilitator in part is to both reclaim the word and make it something that people are powerful, feel powerful to own, which is um, my experience and the way I use it is, is it's a dialogic model, meaning like, I'm not an events planner. I'm not a musician. I mean, I, you know, I, I played the flute in high school, but <laughs> no one would call me a musician. And I, I, I don't know how to create experiences through, um, you know, like magnificent concerts that, that many of my peers do have the skills to do. Like the, 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 the core of my DNA in terms of professionally is dialogue right? It's language. It's creating meaning through language. And part of the reason I feel so passionately about it is because I think it's a more democratic and accessible way through than most other mediums. Meaning anybody can, through asking a series of questions, can get and can get people in a room to talk to each other. You don't need money. You don't need a fancy house. You don't need fancy fish knives. You don't need, you know, f- 20 years as a trained musician, you can get better at it. But to me, when I mean facilitator, I really mean the ability to harness a group to have conversations that matter and to them and that could eventually matter to the world. I mean, it's dialogic. It is about language. I'm I'm literally getting goosebumps as you're talking about it because it just resonates so deeply with me. And I, and I, even what you said is creating the context where people can have the conversations they need to be having. And, you know, I think that so often what times happens is people think about experiences and they think about the aesthetics and and the set and setting and so many of these things. And I think what you just talked about, the democratization of meaningful experience, because anyone can do that if you actually set that properly. And it's so beautiful. It's it's like for, you know, a lot of our audience is very entrepreneurial and creating types of gatherings. And I oftentimes think about like the conference model and how so much focus goes on to what's happening from the stage, as opposed to like how many impactable moments there can be between attendees and how to create more meaningful interaction moments where people can share what they've learned, what they're bringing in, what they've learned in their own life and how you can help everyone to contribute when you're more thoughtful about it. And so I'm curious because you know I kind of do want you to geek out. So what is, what is the sustained dialogue model? Because it sounds like it was so influential kind of in your own work. And so I'd, I'd love to learn a little more about that. Sure. And um, I'll, I'll, I'll answer that in a second, but something you said, um, I, I, want, I want to just give an example to just land the dialogue point in, in gatherings. So first of all, on the conference thing, you know, I think that unconferences are deeply helpful when they match the purpose. I don't think all conferences should be unconference. I think there's certain contexts in which you actually want to h- highlight and elevate expertise in the room, right? So, so, so it really depends on the context. But in terms of like, what does it actually mean to create meaning through people? I'll give two very simple examples. One, my um, somebody I know was recently throwing a um, wanted to get together. She, she older woman. She, she and her husband wanted to gather like their friends for the holidays, and she wrote and she like a Christmas party, and she wrote an invitation. And I'm just actually going to read it to you. I, you know, when you write a book on gatherings, you get a lot of like <laughs> <laughs> invitations for it. Totally. Into- and um, she gave it a name. She called it a Christmas country supper, 2.30 p.m. And supper is like, you know, kind of an Americana. It's like this very specific use of language. It's not lunch. It's not dinner. It's supper, right? It's like it's earlier in the day. And then she had a, a message in her evite. And, and I'm just going to read it to you. It says, yes, we are in the, quote, country. Yes, we will have, quote, supper. And they're not really in the country. They're like in the suburbs. But, you know, this is kind of um, tide oh. and weather permitting. We will walk along the river and have a blazing outdoor fire, not concurrently. Dress warmly and comfortably. 
And then here's the line that I'm talking about, giving people permission to have meaningful conversation with each other. So then the last sentence of the invitation, please bring a memory of a favorite Christmas to share. Mm. Super simple, super simple. That doesn't require money. That doesn't require a big living room. That doesn't require, you know, the right crystal. Bring a piece of experience from you that relates to the purpose and, and I checked in with her afterwards and I said, how'd it go? And she said, it was so beautiful because I was surprised. I thought maybe people would feel a little embarrassed, like, you know, I'm making them do this thing, but they were all like, kind of almost like waiting for it. And then they began to share and she wrote, she texted me and she said, I was, surpri- I was surprised how many people shared sad memories. And it was like very beautiful because this group that didn't really know each other, but knew each other through the trusted connection of the host actually had a meaningful conversation about for them, what does Christmas mean? And in that context, they were all Christian, like it was a specific subgroup, but, and so Christmas meant something very specifically to them. And they talked about loss and they, you know, and fear and death, but also joy and beauty and family and complication. And that all happened not through like her magic in the room. I mean, she, she's an introvert. She's a, like, it's, it happened because of the, the thoughtfulness she put into the, into the invitation, the language, right? It's a sentence. That's when it's like, it's the written language, but it creates this future promise to ask a guest, are you willing to come and bring this? And then in the room to create meaning and context to help people like create a shared memory of what each person experienced beforehand and what can that teach us about ourselves. So this need not be complicated, right? So diet, and it doesn't mean that there's not eggnog and it doesn't mean that she hasn't dressed up the tree and it doesn't mean that the people aren't wearing ugly sweaters. Like it's, that's all fine, but that shouldn't be the medium of meaning. And so, you know, one thing that I want to touch on is I think that you talked about the the woman and that she had some, she was hesitant to make that request of people. And what I'm curious about is for you as kind of the, the facilitator who oftentimes trains facilitators and gatherers is what would you say to people who have this resistance in them to setting structure, to putting boundaries or request into their gatherings? Because it's ultimately, it's, I think that that's, for me, what I see is what keeps so many people from creating these types of intentional events that have constraints around them is because some people might not like that, you know, but that in that case, like that request opened people up. So what would you say to the people who feel that resistance to taking a stand, to making a request, to putting constraints around their event because they feel like that's actually going to create a more meaningful experience? So illegitimate structure will invite a coup right? Like the wrong structure of forcing people to do something they don't want to do is not a good thing. <laughs> so here are my tips. Number, So how do you get to inviting a structure that will help the group do its work, right? And when I say do its work, I mean that like spiritually, not just like do its work in its office. Like, So number one, know the purpose of your gathering. Number two, communicate it to your guests in ways that are culturally appropriate. Number three, the more specific and disputable your purpose is, and the more you communicate that through their invitation, like this woman did in her invitation, where this is a Christmas party, I'm going to invite you to bring a favorite Christmas memory. Like part of what that's signaling is that this is a social contract where I'm inviting you as a guest. The way to be a successful guest is to bring the story and to be game. And if that doesn't really feel good to you, like, don't, don't worry, don't come this time, like come another time. Right. So it's like, so part of the part of, so then once there's alignment between host and guest as to like, what is this thing? Then when they come in the room, they're like actually yearning. It's a gift to give them structure to help them kind of quickly work together. Um, And when I say quickly work together, I mean, like get to the point where people feel safe and happy and comfortable to share a favorite Christmas memory. Um, and I think, you know, when you spring pe- spring something, frankly, even random on people in the room, it isn't going to go well. You know, I also, I, I worry a little bit about um, how popular the idea of vulnerability and connection has become, um, particularly in like corporate life and in work life, um, because I don't think connection in and of itself is a good thing. You know, you're like ISIS can be more connected. Um, mm. I think that uh, connection and particularly vulnerability is helpful when there's a legitimate purpose. 
And when there's a relative uh, weight placed on everybody in the room to share that vulnerability. So like in a huge hierarchy in a corporation to ask an intern to share something vulnerable along with the CEO or to ask people of color or historically oppressed groups to ask to share something that that where there's not a legitimate purpose, it's not actually related to the nature of the group or the core. And it might be. All I'm saying is like blind flailing around connection for connection's sake is is actually a dangerous tool. Know why you're connecting people and make sure there's a legitimacy of purpose. Yeah. So so well said. And so now, you know, we talk about this is kind of a carryover from that initial question of what does it mean to be a facilitator? And you talk so much about dialogue. And so uh, I appreciate that you added the anecdote in there. So thank you for that. And when you think about how how influential and important dialogue is to what it is that you do, when you talk about that sustained dialogue practice, I'm curious if you could tell us a little more about about that practice and how it, it impacts you early on in your career. You're, you're like, you're not going to get away from not answering this question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just fascinated. I've never, I've never heard, I've never heard about it before. And I think that again, I had someone on the show recently and we talked about uh, these kind of like facilitation technologies and interpersonal mm-hmm. technologies. And so I'm just, I'm really curious to hear more. So sustained dialogue is a process that was created and coined by, by Harold Saunders. And, um, he would say that it's a, it's a dialogic-based model um, in which you bring together a group of usually between 12 and 14 people across a diverse um, set of lines, usually around identity, that, where, that the goal is to transform the underlying relationship in order to create the capacity for that group across their differences to make change outside. Um, and it's, there's a couple of elements of it that I think are unique first. And I know I'm sounding like a broken record, like the core medium of transformation is dialogue. It's language. Um, people who influenced him and kind of, he would say, I would think his like ancestors, um, in a, in a dialogue way would be people like David Bohm or Martin Buber. Um, and the second is unlike one-time dialogue, and this is probably to me, the most unique element of the model is it's a, it's a commitment by a specific group of people to keep coming back. So you'd never have one dialogue. That's like, we're going to have this launch dialogue and see where it goes. The pre-commitment for any group is to say, we're going to come together 12 times over the course of a year. Or when he did this in the Arab American European context of bringing together leaders over the course of four years is pre-Arab spring. Um, the pre-commitment was uh, these leaders would agree to come in to, by joining the dialogue in that context. It meant they were committed to for three years coming together three times a year for three days at a time to talk with their counterparts. Like so, so a huge part of this is like this is not a quick fix. The, like relationships are are grounded and mistrust is grounded in like deep historical patterns and identity and all of the things I and patterns of interaction interests. And so sustained dialogue is this methodology that basically looks at how do you actually change the underlying relationships through a series of dialogue dialogues that are generated by the group. Every meeting ends with begins where the last meeting ended. And then um and then it's a five stage model. So the the model is um basically walks you through the, trans, the the life cycle of a group um, that, you know, the first is to decide to engage. And that's actually like a huge phase. You have to actually, in the, this Arab-American-European dialogue that I was a part of the team for, um, it was a three-year pre-engagement period where Rhonda Sleem, one of my mentors, this Lebanese-American facilitator who's amazing, she traveled around the Middle East for three years, like having tea with a prospective participant's grandmother to build trust, mm. right? And so, so it's to decide to engage. And then the second phase is to download or to, and that's really the story sharing phase. Like what has been my experience around this specific issue? Um, the third is to map and name the problems and, and, um, and obs- the, the problems and the community, but collectively, right? So it's not like the Israeli, the Israeli or the Jewish American concept of why this relationship has gotten distorted or the Arab or the Palestinian you know, image. It's actually, it's actually a very complicated process, which is across lines of difference. How do you create a collective shared memory of what is true? Hmm. And how do you diagnose what the problem is now? extraordinarily complicated. Then the stage four is 
what are the obstacles if we um what what could be a um you can look it up and get the exact right language but basically um what are the action steps forward like what would be a scenario planning um of like if we were if we've actually built this trust and can imagine a different way of being what could be the scenarios to re-enter into our communities and find a different way forward um imagining obstacles what might come in our way and then finally action so it's really a theory of change model, um, but grounded in dialogue and focus at the root of, of group relationships and, and group identity. And can you can you begin to create a new identity where the old identities are too much in conflict to be able to reimagine? Uh, it's, it's beautiful and so beautifully laid out. So thank you so much for that. And and so Priya, you know, I think it's it's so amazing when we see, you know, like how you've kind of like grown in prominence and, and you're seeing your ideas spread. But, you know, it's like in your bio, it says that you've been at this for, for more than 15 years as a facilitator. And so I want to get to the present day and, and why you feel that kind of the art of gathering and facilitation is, is more needed today than really kind of any time in recent memory. But I'm also curious to hear a little more about kind of what led you to this point. And was there a moment early in life where you realized that this was not something that you were necessarily just interested in, but it was truly a, an area of professional interest that you were going to commit your life to? And if there was a moment that really led you on that path? You know, the, 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 word, the sentence that came to mind when you were talking, um, which kind of makes me chuckle, is like the question... <laughs> Oh wait, is this a thing? <laughs> <laughs> totally. And yeah. and I think um, <laughs> and people come up to me now when I, I when I speak or you know design experiences. It's like I didn't know this was a thing. Like I've always kind of done. Many people will say like I always kind of instinctively did what you're talking about, but I didn't think it was a thing, right? I didn't realize it was like valued in the world. I didn't realize this is something you can do professionally. And so I think one of the reasons like there's different moments I would say in college, like, is this a thing? What <laughs> was, um, meeting and getting Hal Saunders to, um, to, to train us and to help us start sustained dialogue at UVA, which is where I went to college. Um, and even in those trainings and meeting professionals like Hal Saunders, like Rhonda Sleem, who were actually professionally facilitators called themselves that were paid for it. Weren't diplomats in the state department was like this other way to be, that was very eye-opening. Um, I think when I was in graduate school, I went to um, I did an MBA program and a policy degree program. And frankly, you know, I wrote my call my MBA essay. It was something like why why I believe diplomats need MBAs, and mm. um, and in part it came from my experience working in Gujarat, looking at could could you use dialogue after um, after after riots, after pogroms there between Muslims and Hindus. And I realized that, you know, there was a lot more both economic and structural problems that dialogue was never going to fix. Um, but in that, so I came in kind of deeply remembering who I was, but I think going into this policy program and particularly this MBA program, I lost a sense of that, um, that, that belief that that was worthy. I lost kind of, um, some of my grasp onto my commitment to facilitation. I started, you know, it's sort of, you know, I should be a management consultant or I don't have all these other skills or maybe I should go into finance. Like you start, it's, it's the beauty of going into certain worlds is if you can glean their skills and mindsets, the, the danger of going into certain worlds is that those mindsets become um, fixed or, or start to, to, intervene in your identity. And so there was a period in time where I started thinking, well, maybe a what's a facilitator? Like, I don't, no one really understands what I do. <laughs> um, and maybe this isn't really a thing. And, um, and I started kind of interviewing for consulting jobs and was deeply, deeply unhappy, deeply unhappy. I mean, had health crisis, had like hair fall out of my head, like just really I fainted on a plane. I, and, um, and I pause and I had a, and a doctor pause me and, and he basically said, like, you're going against your grain. Um, and I took some time off and I, I had various like mentors and friends basically say, like, like get very clear on what it is you most want to do and what your 
what do you want to build? And and like a, the deepest part of me is like, I want to build, a, I want to be a facilitator. I want to build at that time, I was working also one-on-one and in groups. I want to build a visioning practice. And people were like, what is that? And long story short, I came out of that period and I said, I'm going to try this out. I'm going to, for, for one year, my final year of graduate school, I'm going to practice. I'm going to get as much mastery as I can envisioning. And this was like a specific process that I was, that I was kind of creating and experimenting with. And in order to do that, I'm going to do a hundred visioning labs this year. And the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to get everyone I know with a pulse to convince them to give me three hours of their time, three days, three to four days a week. So for basically for a year, three to four days in a week for a week, when I was in graduate school from three to 6 PM, I was running people through a process. And each year I would just basically look and say like, is this a thing? <laughs> it seems to be a thing. And, and I mean, this is kind of a very long way of saying like, it doesn't always look obvious. You're, it's kind of meandering along, you know, various moments where you start realizing like, maybe there's something to this. Um, and, and you kind of just have to follow that thread. And so, and what about you thought that this, this process of visioning, like what connected, like to circle back to, again, the importance of purpose in these things, what was driving you to that as your contribution in terms of what it was that you really wanted to do? Well, one of the things that we found in dialogue um, and in facilitation was that when communities couldn't figure out, didn't have a vision, it was very difficult um, to sustain their commitment to each other over time. Like for a while, the relationships can be interesting enough, but at some point it was actually setting a positive vision of a world that they could imagine could help them actually get there, right? It was actually more stage four and five of that, of that process I outlined earlier. So for example, like if you're, if, if in a group, um, if a, if a member said something like, well, I think the next step is to go out and survey the population. Like that might create some level of energy, but if, but if somebody said something like, I want to create a, a world in which, um, in which I'm, I don't feel scared to send my kid out to play. All of a sudden, everyone could imagine that, right? That was, yeah. that it's, it's a very, it's a very simple way of thinking of vision, but that's a vision, right? A lot of things need to be true in order for like that to work. And so I realized that and I, um, and I, I basically began to, I wanted to become an expert at vision, um, and, and at the process of actually like becoming as rigorous around vision development as I was around facilitation as a process. Um, and there was a question that I, you know, one of the things as a facilitator that you work on over and over and over again is like the, um, the 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 precision of questions so like one of the things as a facilitator if any you know those of you who are listening who are facilitators or want to be facilitators like one of the most masterful skills um to develop is is your is the precision around question formation and as i was looking at this visioning process and helping people walk through and trying to figure out what is their vision for their life or their work i i noodled over a question for four years starting that year. And the question that I've landed on that to me kind of broke open the world was this, what is the biggest need in the world that you might have the passion and capacity to address? Mm. And part to me, like the two parts of that question, there's, it's actually, there's like a political theory in that question, (laughs) which is in order to figure out your vision or sense of purpose. And I think this is true for an individual or a community or an organization it, to only self-examine what are my passions and what are my capacities, you may actually like find the wrong need or it's only all internal, right? Meditation or therapy or, um, or all of the different modalities that help one, you know, kind of understand oneself. If it's not, to, I believe if it's not connected to a real external need, to a real relevant external world, it is then only good for the self. On the other hand, if you only say what is needed in the world, Or what is the biggest market or what is, you know, where's the the most pain, but you don't know anything about it or it doesn't really, you know, stir you. You're not going to be the best person to go after that or your company or your organization. And so part of this process of visioning and I now I do it. I just now it's a very core part of my group process um, 
is beginning to understand the two sides of this equation, which is like, who are, who, who are we, who do we want to be? But also like, what is it that we most know how to do and, and, and what do you want to learn? But then also like what most enrages you out in the world? And I believe those two elements put together is a deeply sustainable model. You're not going to burn out and you will hopefully be effective. And so Priya, you, you so beautifully talk about the importance of connecting to a need or an issue that really just uh, puts a fire in your belly. And, um, you know, I love the idea of transcending the self, of, of connecting to something that's that's bigger than you as a motivating force. And so because you spent so much time in this space, I'm curious, what do you see at this moment in time as some of the most important areas that these practices of, of meaningful gathering, facilitation, important conversation and dialogue can really address? What are some of those, those areas that, you know, people can really implement some of these issues to have a, a sustained impact? Um, that's such a great question. <laughs> Let me count thy ways. Um, I think that some of the most important needs are individually and collectively, one, the crisis of loneliness. Um, I think the our fracturing public, um, both across political lines, across racial lines, like, you know, I'm based in the U.S. and um, the kind of the 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 browning of America, <laughs> speaking as a brown person, um, is bumping up against um, a population, you know, that is trying to figure out what that means for them. Um, and uh, I think conversations around like equal parenting. Um, rituals around equal parenting. I think m- many of our, um, you know, I've seen this again and again, you know, I think this next generation wants to kind of equally parent. And this is, you know, I'm particularly talking about heterogeneous um, hetero couples. Um, but, but I've seen again and again, like w- women and men who are in relationships have like relatively same education, relatively same job profile, get married, committed to like equal partnership. Then the kids come and we start repeating these like 1950s like tropes. And I think one of the, you know, I I think there's many reasons for that, including structural ones like daycare. Um, But I also think some of that is because we don't have, when, when we gather the rituals that we know and have inherited reflect roles that we no longer want to hold right so like a baby shower for example um is a is a ritual that's based on a lot of assumptions of the of the solo role that the woman will play in child rearing um there's no ritual there's no equivalent ritual for a man to go from from married you know from husband to father right what's a fatherhood ritual look like um, Esther Perel talks about one of the one of the kind of inventions of modernity is modern fatherhood, and yet we we don't have rituals yet to 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 invite in that new identity. And by the way, that identity is relational. So fatherhood is changing. Motherhood also has to change. Um, I think conversations around um, like digital addiction, digital life, um, and and you know, at some level, like the practice and the death of, uh, of dialogue and conversation, um, is in part because our, 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 like our meaningful exchanges are dictated through the constraints of algorithms, you know, digital algorithms. Um, so, you know, I think that there's, I, I think you can look at any family, any community, anything in the country and see needs in front of you. I mean, climate change, for example, is a huge one. I think rising authoritarianism um, in all over the world in this country. I think there are so many, we are, we are not in a moment where we are, you know, where we lack needs. Um, and I think the more you focus on like, what is a need that you see around you that you particularly connect to in some way, feel angry about, feel scared about, you know, move in that direction. 
And so, and Priya, when you look at that, you know, you started in a place that I kind of just want to dive a little bit deeper because you started with the epidemic of loneliness. And if you were just to provide people with a little more context of the situation that we currently find ourselves in, um, how would you introduce people to that idea of like the loneliness epidemic and what, what we, what situation we find ourselves in? Sure. I mean, um, the, the, you know, Surgeon General of uh, under Obama, Vivek Murthy, um, actually said that we have a national epidemic of loneliness. Um, I believe he's also coming out with a book about it, but, but that this idea that, that loneliness or the fracture that being apart from others, um, actually has, you know, deep health consequences. It has, um, national security risks. I mean, part of when, when all of this data now shows that, um, when the you know Russians sent over these two spies, these uh, these two women who went on a road trip and kind of went to understand sort of America and our our vulnerability moments, our vulnerability points, a lot of what is um, w- one of the reasons why a lot of the, like the hacks worked um, is because they they were able to look at the ways that we actually no longer trust each other. They're able to you know create quite fake. Twitter accounts and kind of push on the notes that are that are already working in part because we are we don't know each other uh, any you know anymore um, we are no longer and this is like Bob Putnam's work but like we are no longer bo- we are no longer joining associations we you know we are bowling alone but now we're not even going to bowling alleys <laughs> um, and so I think part of um, what you know suicide among young people is up. Um, but I think part of what, uh, why, why loneliness is not just kind of like a, a, a nice to have, or a community is just a nice to have is because actually like we are, we think we believe we like the things we believe about the world are based on other people, whether that's in relationship with them or, or our judgments, you know, far, far away from them. And this, this, um, sitting isolated or frankly coming together and then not meaningfully connecting, which can also be lonely, um, is, is deeply dangerous. I mean, when people start becoming ideas rather than, you know, flesh and (laughs) flesh in front of you that are complicated, you know, dynamic individuals, um, become, you know, flat characteristics, uh, caricatures, uh, it's, that's a, that's a dangerous that's a dangerous moment. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I love so much about your work, and you, you already spoke about it, you know, early in the interview, is the idea of setting the container for people to have meaningful conversation, setting setting the frame where that can happen. And in so many of these areas, you know, I'm certainly fascinated about um, political polarization and, and other issues. But one area where I've been spending a lot of time and, and we've already talked about it is in the world of, of men's work and really taking a stand for the evolution of men, the evolution of fathers so that we can create a more just and, and equitable world. And so what I'm curious about is if you're to look at that kind of like, you know, the, the rites of passage that existed for men for for so long were, you know, whether they were religious or they were tribal, but these very direct moments, which still exist, you know, in, in tribal communities around the world that had a very direct transition from uh, an individual, a young man into uh, a man and, and kind of stepping into new responsibility. What do you see as some of the opportunities in the realm of tangible rituals that are facilitating this type of transition in men where they can take on roles that are more conducive with the society that we we now live in and not one, you know, with with rigid gender roles where men are kind of contributing in the workplace and women are contributing at home. What do you see as some of the tangible rituals that either you are already seeing or some that you would like to see people start to put into into play? Well, I mean, I think some of the um the work that I've heard about or read about or have had men experience and tell me have been powerful um, are in terms of actually structured rituals are happening at kind of organizational level. So like the Mankind Project um, creates these retreats and has been for, you know, 
at least a decade, if not much longer. Um, yeah, we're going to have Boyson on the podcast in a couple of weeks, actually, who's their director of comms. Great. That's great. Um, that's like starts with the simple insight that a ritual should even exist, right? So like sure. we're like, I, um, and then I think this, the second question becomes, so then what are we meaning making around, right? So I could tell you all the technical solutions of how to create a powerful ritual, but if you're creating a powerful ritual around codifying the wrong, you know, inappropriate traits, then it's a problematic ritual. Um, and so I think part of, you know, when, when I look at past- And so, you know, with, within that Priya, what is the way that you think we can actually kind of codify the, the correct meeting? And what are some of the things that you'd like to see with some of these rituals that are emerging? So I'll, I'll, let me frame it in some questions that I think like yeah. need answering. And I'll start by just saying, I think one of, I recently um, was with the leaders of the, uh, like all of the fraternity and sorority life in America, um, sure. talking to them about, about what does it mean to be responsible for creating belonging, but have gotten themselves into a place where the rituals that are being perpetuated are actually deeply, you know, exclusive and, and, landing on the front pages of, you know, the newspapers for very bad reasons, you know, and, and I think part, so, so, but what are the, one of the insights I think is that powerful rituals tend to have some element of transgression in them, right? Some element of boundary crossing. And I think that particularly rites of passage. So like, you know, you read about these uh, different rites of passage in like, tribes where, um, where, you know, a boy has to go out and do something physically dangerous, right? Like go into a forest at night or come back and like, you know, kill a tiger, you know, whatever. I don't mean to be totally stereotypical, but basically like some transgressive physical act. Um, but when you look at various rituals that start getting distorted over time, some of the transgression that you see even in fraternities in this country are transgressions in ways that actually dehumanize others. And so I think one of the like big areas to explore, particularly for men is how can you create transgressive acts that embody the values you wish to fulfill? Um, How do you, how do we create rituals that allow us to, um, reimagine the roles that we have inherited how do we create rituals that reify the parts of learned masculinity or manhood or whatever language you want to use but also um, purge the parts that are no longer serving us and i think the larger conversation is in any type of ritual in a larger community is does anyone get to define what healthy masculinity is? Or is there a is there a larger conversation that says, like, these are the four tenets, I'm making this up, but like these are the four tenets of what it means to be an integrated, you know, integrated with your um with your chosen gender. Um and I think part and the second thing I'd say is it is very it, it, it in many of these rituals, one tends to focus on one simple, single identity, right? And so within that identity, it's like men to men. But I think none of these rituals, it's very difficult to actually change society if you're holding these rituals in private and you don't do basically counter rituals with, with, they, with whom they are in relationship, right? So if you have all of these men going through these transformative acts of becoming whatever it is you want them to become... And then they go back and then they go back and enter a context in which all of their like community or friends haven't actually been through that experience. It's very hard going. In conflict resolution, we call that process re-entry. Um, and so I think part of part, another host of questions is like how, what does relational rituals look like? And when do you do relate rituals within groups? And when do you do rituals counter, when do you only do when do you say a precondition for running this ritual is that you have to have your partner go through this, you know, this 
either be present or go through like what's the equivalent ritual because we are we are relational um and so i think a lot of the the elements that are happening is if somebody comes home and the 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 partner that they're with doesn't understand this new role then you're going to go back to square one yeah i i love that idea so much it's something that's become clear to me even at our own junto retreats and we oftentimes say that we do uh men's work not so that we can become better men, but so we can become better humans. And so we can be better for the people and communities that we care about. Mm -hmm. Like if we're just getting better for ourselves, like what is, what is the point of that? But it's, how is the work that we're doing there, whether that's in a men's group or at a men's retreat, how is that impacting the people that we care about? And it's when, when I started, I've been in a men's group for about two and a half years now. And one of the really important things that we added after the first year was this, most of the guys are, are married, I'd say probably a half have kids and it's this quarterly check-in with, for us, our wives. And it's, you know, how do you feel about this work? How am I showing up, you know, and checking in and seeing how has this work been impacting our relationship and making sure that it's actually conducive with, you know, a result and an outcome that is working for both of us, which is a very kind of like, I think, microcosm of, you know, how this type of work can have a, a more a broader kind of cultural impact. But I think of that you, you talked, was it process reintegration is what you call it? Um, I'm not, I think I just think about it as, as integration, you know, with with any type of these peak experiences, you know, whether it's, you know, so many people experimenting with like psychedelics or having these like peak experiences at at retreats, but the process of, of going through those, right. And then actually having some intentional ritual that, that allows them to make that more a part of, you know, their, their ongoing day-to-day life. So. Yes. Um, uh, you know, I one, also, what, yeah, so I'll just say one more thing in terms of like the texture and tone of the, of these different rituals is I think different, different people will be drawn to different types. But, you know, if you remember like the opening of Fight Club, like I think to me, Fight Club is like as a movie, but then also like their actual gatherings in the basement are like these like iconic <laughs> gatherings. Right. And then it kind of spins off the wheels. But to me, like his opening script, I'm not going to quote it exactly, but it's something like, when did I become a guy who knows what like a futon is or whatever, you know, when like, there's like this manifesto of like the, the, the kind of demasculation of, um, of manhood. And, and what I love about that film is that, um, it creates this ritual, it creates these gatherings that are that have rules, that have norms, that whose equitable norms are um, the norms are equitable if you're within that context, um, and and it allows this again, like it's a transgressive act to punch each other in the face, yeah. and <laughs> and um, I think that if all ritual among men is only like dialogic. I think that there'll be a, um, I think there'll be a coup. I, like, I think like rituals need to be like all rituals for, I would say for everybody, but particularly when you're exploring something like masculinity, like there should be multiple textures and multiple types throughout this process. Yeah. It's, it's interesting you say that we, I was just writing today about platonic male touch and how mm-hmm. it's evolved over the past hundred years in, in male friendships and it's interesting, like even now where you look like around the world and you look at, you know, men holding hands in the Middle East or, or Africa or Asia is not uncommon. You know, if you're walking around like Bahrain or Dubai, um, but in America, you know, it's against some of the, the, the homophobic conditioning that happens just from like a, a masculine conditioning standpoint. It's so present and like keeps us away from that. But to liberate even those types of transgressions like you talk about to physical touch as well as you know, deeper dialogue, I think are so powerful. And, you know, one thing that, because I I'll think just, we're, we're kind of moving towards a close. Sorry, I'll just put an asterisk on that. Yeah. It's like careful of, uh, I know, you know, I know what you're talking about, but careful of using that as future progress, because there's a lot of basically studies that show that there that's also correlated with, you know, very oppressive, oppressive and suppressed societies in terms of gender relations. Like, there's a lot, you know, rape rates are higher. I mean, in India, which is having, you know, huge amounts of, of rape cases all over the news and it's like deeply upsetting in many ways. My mother lives there. It's like, it's a very, it's very close to home. You see men and women, so it's, men walking on the street holding hands, but like 
that's not a symptom of healthy masculinity. <laughs> well, I think that there's probably a deeper conversation there, right? There's there's something that I think I think that you're bringing to my awareness right there. But so the aspect of men holding hands there when you talk about healthy masculinity, because for me it occurs that that is a healthy expression of masculinity is the the openness to platonic male touch like that. But you have but to look at what what why what I mean this is a longer conversation but you have to look at the larger context of what is then appropriate and what are the venues to in in that society to, or in any of these societies appropriate roles with the opposite sex. Yeah, certainly. And I mean, even if, if we look at that one, I, I, we could go on for, for so long, but I know that I want to get you out of here in the next five minutes. And so, you know, Priya, I, one thing that's that's really just stood out to me is, is again, it's, you know, how you, your whole approach, I think, empowers people that they don't need to be smarter than anybody else. They don't need to have more knowledge about an issue, but to create these types of meaningful experiences, like it, it's about creating a container, like asking questions. Like when I just asked you about men's work and, and rituals, you, you came back to me with questions that I can put in front of men, you know, that can open me up to exploration, which is so powerful. And so, you know, the, the one question that I'm curious to ask you before we let you go is when you, you talk so beautifully about the need the importance of connecting to a need or, or something that you feel you have the passion and capacity to solve. And so for you at this stage in your career, you know, what, what is that? And, and what is your vision for the art of gathering moving forward and, and the impact that you hope it can have in the world? Um, I, for art of gathering, my deepest hope is that um, we change the way collectively um, when, why, and how we come together and we move away from a focus on the shaping of things as their primary form of meaning to the shaping of people and the connection between people. Um, and personally, you know, I'm, my, my day job is still as a, as a facilitator and as a conflict resolution facilitator in groups. Um, and I'm, I'm very interested in, um, the future of, of, of this country and how we stitch together social fabric across political lines, but also um, within, within political movements uh, so that we are, are building a, a, a reality that this country was, was um, at least started to, to promise. I just finished reading Jill Lepore's These Truths, and it's, um, it's a reminder uh, of, of the work that this country has always been and continues to be. Um, and, and that's something that, um, that in my own little way, I, I try to, uh, is a need I try to be a part of. Well, and you are having a major impact and I can speak from personal experience and, and how influential it's been on my own work and, you know, how I'm trying to, to gather. And I know so many others who feel the same way. Uh, and so thank you so much for being a stand for meaningful dialogue, meaningful gatherings and, you know. The, the future of humanity as we know it. But uh, <laughs> Priya, I've, I've loved our time together. And for people who want to continue the conversation with you, what's the best place to keep up with you online and other stuff that you have going on at the moment? Um, thank you. They can, uh, you can go to my website, priyaparker.com and sign up for my newsletter. Um, and I'm uh, follow me on Instagram at my name at Priya Parker. Beautiful. Well, Priya, thank you so much for joining us on What's the Big Idea. Have an amazing day, and we're excited to share this with the world. Thank you so much for having me.